Well, there's a tale about a young man, it's an Asian tale actually, who captured a tiger and he brought it home and he raised it in a cage. And because it was in the cage, his his friends had become familiar with it. They kept coming around. They would see this tiger in the cage and they watched it grow. And once it got full grown, it, the the friends would scoff about how the tiger was no longer ferocious or powerful. The tiger isn't wild anymore, one of the one of the friends mocked. He's as tame as an old house cat. And the friend put up with that for, for a while. And one day when the ridicule began, the owner of the tiger just walked over to the cage, placed his hand on the latch, smiling, and said, there's one way to know. Want to try out my tiger? And, of course, that changed the the conversation really quickly. It's easy, I believe. I believe it's easy for a Christian, especially one that's been a believer for a long time. It's It's easy for a Christian to think the same way as those friends did, about a tiger, about your own heart. We think that we have our tigers in a religious or moral cage. When we're first saved, it, the tiger jumps out of the cage and you have to corral it and you stuff it back in there and lock the door and then you learn how to strengthen the bars or how to feed it or, or otherwise and, and you can kind of control it. It looks like a nice and tame Little tiger, it seems to us like it's no longer ferocious, only to have something or someone come along and open the cage. Has anyone ever opened the cage of your heart and the tiger came out? Well, last Sunday we began looking at some passages together about how to deal with body life within the church. And we're looking at these passages intentionally to salt our hearts with the truth and also build protection from the devil as we consider some non-doctrinal decisions about our, our future. And we all know that the Bible is our authority on matters of doctrine, and, and doctrine can and should divide. It, it, it will divide. Truth divides. Jesus even said Himself, speaking of the gospel, that it would even divide down to the, to the, the most basic aspect of our society, the, the family unit. Jesus says, you may follow me and it will break up father, mother, brother, sister. In fact, if your love for me is, is not greater than that, then you cannot be by disciples. Speaking of loyalty to, to Christ alone. Matters of doctrine, they do divide. But sadly, a lot of division in churches doesn't come from Bible doctrine, but it comes from what I call the three P's, uh, preferences, peeves, and personal desires. Say that fast three times. Preferences, peeves, or pet peeves as they like to be called, and personal desires. In fact, as I was preparing for this morning, I was thinking back in my Christian life, and I cannot think of one major church argument that I've experienced. Now, I haven't experienced a lot of them because I've been in very good churches like like Timberlake, but I can't think of one ugly experience that wasn't sent, that was centered around that was centered around the fundamental of the faith. Um, sadly, I can think of plenty of issues that that really the spirit of God had to be brought to bear and the word had to be brought to bear 
and in some cases great harm to the cause of Christ came about, in all of those cases had to do with secondary matters or personalities or earthly things, things that will that will burn up. I, I've shared this with you before, but my mind went back to this. I can remember the first real church issue that I ever experienced as a new believer. I'd been saved a couple of years. I mean, brand new in the in the faith. And and the issue led to a church-wide business meeting. And it was over the location of the sound booth in the sanctuary. Really serious stuff. Well, it had been in a little closet at Red House, and um, it had a little window in it. You, you've seen like the, look, the, the guy that used to run the sound booth kind of looked like the fortune teller, you know, the little or a ticket window. He's back there. He's not part of the, part of the church. And so the church discussed it for a while, and the leaders wanted to bring it inside. So the person who could run the, run the sound could make the acoustics better. You know, when you're outside of the room... You can't hear as well, and also it would be nice for that person to be part of the service. And, but to make that happen, we had to cut off four feet of two-back pews on the right-hand side. Four feet of two-back pews. In fact, if you want to, if you want a visual, think of the old sanctuary and think of how the, the roll-top desk is back there and how that takes up a portion. That's exactly what it looked like whenever, whenever they were done. But there was a, a man who had had been there through some really difficult things and and um, had helped build this sanctuary with his own two hands and and got really really upset over the idea and it all led to a big congregational meeting and as a young Christian I can remember just coming with trepidation not knowing what was going to happen you know I was 24 and so I'd been to church when I was young and. The only thing I'd seen up to this point was, man, these are just great people. And uh, I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. I can remember there, and as it started, it started. The stuff started coming out of people's hearts. And I can just remember there, just sitting there being very confused and and grieved. And and I, 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 I love this brother. I couldn't understand. I really just could not wrap my head around why he was... Why he was so upset and um, and treating others the same way, I can, and I can remember somewhere in the in the in the service that that all I knew to do was just get up and go to the front of the church over to the side and get down on my knees and pray. That's a small church, 150, 200 people, something like that. So it wouldn't be wouldn't seem abnormal. And I just got up and, and did that and just began to pray and blocked out everything else that was, was, was going on. And it wasn't long as I sent somebody close to me on one side and then somebody on the, the other side. And the meeting ended not with a resolution to what happened, but a spontaneous prayer meeting. And it was a beautiful thing, at least that part of it. And as I look back on it now, I thought how sad it was for a two-year-old Christian to actually be leading, leading the church unknowingly, ignorantly, leading people that had been saved 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And the real issue wasn't the church pew, it was the, it was the heart. The tiger got let out of the cage by something. Other than that, great, great fellow. In fact, I think in every issue of division, 
the heart is the is the matter. I made this statement to someone last week. Issues don't divide churches. People divide churches. And primarily the issue is is always the heart. Now, when we looked at Acts uh, chapter 6, the issues can be legitimate. They, they don't always have to be illegitimate or something silly like, a, like cutting off a, a, a church pew. In, the, in, the, in Acts 6, with the Hebrews and the Hellenists, that was a real situation. That was a, that was a real deal. It wasn't something minor. And, and a solution had to be brought to bear. Or there would have been stifling of, of the church and... And, and, and God's Word. And so while I'm not aware of any issues within our body right now, we don't want to be ignorant of Satan's devices or potential, or the potential of our own hearts to get off track. So, open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I said we looked at last week at Acts 6 on Sunday morning about how the early church handled a problem that was due to some growing pains. And we get to see a spiritual response by the leaders and then the following of the congregation. Sunday night, we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, and we learned about sheep-to-sheep contact rules to doing that. We learned how to relate to one another when issues of the heart arise. If I would define it this way, if I put these three messages together, those of you who like to think conceptually, Acts 6 was about the leaders bringing a resolution to bear. First Thessalonians 4 was about members caring for one another. So in Acts 6, you have the leaders stepping up. In Acts, in First Thessalonians 4, you have the members policing themselves or bringing the gospel to bear. The passage that we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians 3 this morning, we're going to get some theological principles or truth principles or Bible doctrine, whatever term you want to use, about unity and disunity within the church. So think of this as the the theological foundation for what you saw practiced in Acts 6 and why you get the commands to to, uh, admonish the unruly and and, uh, strengthen the weak in 1 Thessalonians 4 and, and everything else. The great Christian hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers by Sabine Baring Gould, says... Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity, which is love. Describes the church like an army. You remember 1 Thessalonians 4, that first word about admonishing the unruly or those who are out of step with the movement of the army. Describes the church as a unit together. And, and it, it talks about we're not the first ones to walk this path. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We sang, the choir sang by faith this morning, which is, which is a rendition of Hebrews 11. Whatever we have for our future as an individual congregation is built upon the faithfulness of the members of the past. And it goes back long beyond uh, tent revival that happened over in Walgreens parking lot. It goes all the way back to the to the apostles, to Jesus. I mean, we are walking a path where saints have have trod, and in all of that, we're not divided. We're one body, and what unifies us? One hope, one doctrine, 
and love oils, charity oils, all of those things. We have the hope of eternal life in Christ, and that's based upon the doctrine, the truth of who Jesus is and what He has accomplished. And that's the main, the main thing. So let's read 1 Corinthians verse 10, and we're going to cover seven verses here this morning. Apostle Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of closed household, that there are contentions or quarrels among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am following Paul, or I am of Apostle, or I am Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Here's Paul's main argument. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words. And here's the whole issue of the matter. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect, should be emptied of its power or its ability to transform. Now, 1 Corinthians is a pastoral letter. We don't have time to to blow the whole thing out, but just remember this. It's a pastoral letter to a spiritually troubled church. I mean, if, if you go to any commentary, you probably go in your study Bible in the first part, you will see that there is a clear outline of 1 Corinthians. There's a skeletal system there. And, in, and, and all of the letter is, is connected to, to either a question Paul's answering or an issue that, that he's addressing. And I think it's very interesting that the very first thing that Paul leads with is disunity. In the church. Now, it's not always. Sometimes you've heard the statement, you save the best for last. But if you were the apostle and you were writing to a spiritually troubled church, I think it's significant that the first thing that he leads with out of the gate and spends the next three chapters talking about is sectarianism or disunity within, within the church. Which I think shows how serious it is without even going to what the passages say. And if we look at this first seven verses, Paul helps us understand four areas that relate to unity in the church. There are four areas that he covers here. In verse 10, there's an appeal for agreement in the body. In verses 11 and 12, the issue, there's the issue of loyalty to lesser things. Third, in verses 13 through 16, there's the principle of oneness in Christ. And then in verse 17, there's the result of gutting the gospel. Strong, ugly, visual word, but that's exactly what Paul wants us to hear. There's the result. It's being brought to bear on the message of the church of gutting the gospel. Let's look at the first area. The first area 
that relates to, to unity is an appeal for agreement in the body. Look at verse 10. Now watch what he does here, how he introduces this issue. He says, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's three parts to that. I plead, which means a passionate appeal. And then he calls them brethren, reminds them that they are one of the same church. And then he ups the ante even more. If it wasn't enough for him to passionately plead and call them brethren, remind them they're of the same church, he, I mean, he goes for the ultimate trump card, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, this is not my authority. This is, this is, this matters to Christ. I plead or I urge. It's, it's a, it's the word where we get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, uh, is a helper. It's used by John. He, he's, he's saying, I'm coming alongside and pleading with, with a, for a hearing on this important topic. And he makes appeals to brothers. Paul's reminding him the great truth. I think, only known to believers. He's pleading with them by reminding them of their common bond in, in Christ. I found this very comical um, media correction. The media doesn't always tell the truth to begin with, much less correct themselves whenever they do. But here was one time where they corrected something. In Cambridge... Minnesota Star, the correction article wrote, The Asante County Commissioner, Tom Pagel, has 100% support from his family, not 10% as was stated in last week's article on his announcement to seek re-election. It's probably a pretty good, pretty good correction to make. 100% support of his family, not 10%. It's important to have support of your family in a, an election or re-election. But Paul says, and Paul knows, even more important is unity within the church, within the body of Christ. And I think that's why he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, there's two gospel references in that. Brethren and by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he uses the full title. When my mother used to say, William Brian Farrell... I knew exactly what she meant. He's saying, the Lord Jesus Christ, this is, this is big stuff. I'm appealing to you on that basis. Who He is and all He is. That's what the name means. It's who Christ claimed to be, to be who He is. And this is a truth, I think, only known to Christians, that this unity comes in Christ alone. I mean, we joke all the time about me hailing from West Virginia some 14 or 15 years ago. Um, some people come from California. Some people come from different, different parts of the country. I was in a gathering this past week where there was like five different countries represented, citizens of those countries that are part of the ministry here at Timberlake. There was one from China, one from Nepal, one from Japan, one from uh, France. I mean, it was just... Everywhere. And yet, for those who are believers, it doesn't matter where you hail from, there's unity in Christ. And that's something that only Christians can truly boast of. Only Christ can bring together Jew and Gentile. Slave and free. 
Greek and barbarian, and that they all call themselves brothers. Have you ever been around other Christians and you don't know anything about them? Maybe you go on vacation and you, you go to a church on, on that Sunday morning or you go on a mission trip somewhere and you don't know these people from Adam, as they say, but you have an instant fellowship with them and you feel a bond there? You know what that is? It's the unity in Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit that's there. Think about them, I've told you this before, among the disciples of Jesus. There's 12 of them. One of them was Matthew the tax collector, and one of them was Simon the zealot. Here you have Matthew the tax collector, a traitor to the Jewish people, and a zealot who has sworn to bring death to any traitor and fight against Rome with every ounce of his blood. And they are, in ministry of Jesus, three years going about serving other people, sleeping next to each other, eating, and they're unified not because of where they came from or even their cultures, but because of their Messiah. And yet, sadly, in the Corinthian church, that's not the case. Look at verse 10. I plead with you that you all speak the, the same thing. It's, it's an idea of saying the, having harmony, saying the same thing. That there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together. Now, watch what he does here. There's two phrases. That there be no divisions, but that you be joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. You be united. No divisions, but be united. What he wants. And then he gives the contrast. The word here for division is, is where we get the word in English, a, a schism. A, in a physical sense, it means to tear or to to rip something. People actually buy jeans with schisms in them. or sh- they, they pay big money for those things. In a spiritual sense, though, it meant a breach or a separation between two people or groups. And Paul says, I urge you or plead that there be no divisions. There's no schism among you. Tonto and Lone Ranger were riding through the canyon together when all of a sudden both sides of the canyon were filled with Native American warriors on horses dressed for battle. And the Lone Ranger turned to Tonto and asked, What are we going to do? And Tonto replied, What you mean, we, white man? (laughs) You know, while we covenant together as members of the same church, when preferences and pressures arise in their war paint, it can reveal where our real loyalty lies. The gospel or our own desires. And in those cases, when that happens, when pressures or preferences or the three Ps come up in all of their war paint, and we find that where our real loyalty lies in those divisions, those fissures, those cracks begin to be shown within the body, in those cases, we're in union as church members, but, but we have no unity. You can have a union without unity. Let me give you an example. Tying two cats together by their tails and throwing them over a clothesline is a union. But unity comes by being knit together in Christ. Some of you have marriages that are a union, but there's very little unity there. There are some churches that have a union, but there's very little unity there. 
And Paul's saying Christians, no matter how catty they are in nature, when we're tied together, we're thrown over not a clothesline, but over the cross. And when that happens, you shouldn't find yourself fighting, but embracing. Paul goes on to describe what he means here. Look at verse 10. Do you all speak the same thing? That there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Same mind has the idea of general principles. Same judgment is the application of those. How are you going to work those out? It's not Christians. Paul's, I don't think Paul's saying here that Christians are to be carbon copies. He's not saying drink the Kool-Aid, have groupthink, whatever it is. That's what the culture does. Christians are to be carbon copies or not to have their own opinion on a matter. It's that whenever they do, they understand that the unity of the gospel and Jesus Christ is of greater importance than whatever any of those secondary issues are. They strive to understand one another and find their unity in Christ. I mean, this phrase, what he means here by this phrase, you be joined together in the same mind and the same judgment, it's, a, it's, a, it's an attack on, on hypocritical unity. He's attacking people, or the Corinthians here, that just give lip service to unity but keep their disagreements and objections to themselves and they never deal with, with any of those issues. Or worse... They don't keep them well themselves, they, they share them with another small group, which you're going to see here in just a moment. The group of Cephas, the group of Apollos, the group of Paul, whoever it, it, it might be. We labor for understanding. We labor to prefer the perspectives of, of others. Do you really think in the light of eternity that that church pew that my brother got bent out of shape about really means that much? Now, think of it in this context. Tracy and I have this, this, this joke that goes all the way back to her telling her sister something whenever, uh, whenever she was on a... Uh, she, her husband ate a piece of, of, uh, of cake. She cooked this cake or this pie, I forget what it was, and he had got a piece out of it. And she baked that for church or for school or for something else. So she's going to take this beautiful thing and there's a piece out of it. And he got... And she, she called him, do you believe what, you know, he did? And Tracy said to her, you know, now, you know, Jen, in, in light of eternity, you know, what's a piece of cake? Now, of course, Jennifer turned that around on Tracy many times, and we've laughed about it, you know, and you, when you know somebody's right and they're spiritual, but you don't want them to be spiritual, you just want them to agree, oh, yeah, that was right, they shouldn't have taken that piece of cake. Think of it this way. Do you think, how do you think that my brother will feel? He's, he's gone now. He's, he's, he's no longer walking the earth. Do you think you'll feel justified in the day? Do you, you think he will feel as justified as he did in the day when he stood up and protested when standing before Jesus and explaining to him that he damaged the unity of the church and unsettled young Christians? How do you think that do you think he will he will protest with the same venom then? And you say, well, well, Jesus, it was just for the principle of the matter. Do you think that, that that's that's what he'll say? The Corinthians had been caught into fellowship through the Lord Jesus Christ, but their true loyalties were tied to other things. And that's what he's dealing with. So let me give you the second one. Second area that relates to unity is the issue. 
the loyalty to lesser things in verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11. Now he begins, he appeals, and now he unfolds or peels back the onion a little bit. Why is Paul making this plea? Verse 11, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of of close household, that there are quarrels or contentions among you. So he reveals the issue where he's heard it. He doesn't say, well, now I heard. can't tell you who it was because they held me to confidence. They just asked me to see to pray about this. He names close household because it was that serious that divisions be dealt with. This is where I heard and this is what I was told was going on. And the Corinthians had been called and it says it's been reported. It means to make clear, to make show. It wasn't a, it wasn't a veiled you know, salvo that was fired from another disgruntled person in the Corinthian church. They, they reported it. They made it clear. They laid out the case. They offered evidence of that. We're not told who Chloe is or what is meant by her people. It could be people of the household, meaning servants or slaves that were there. It could have been where the church was meeting. All we were told is that there was quarreling and that was connected to their, to their loyalties. Now think about what he's saying here in verse 11. It's been declared, it's been made clear, the case has been laid out to me concerning you by these specific individuals. And here's what they're saying, that there's contentions among you. That is, each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. The division was obvious, and it became clearest when they were gathered together. You two, two things that I think that you, can, that you can clearly see in that statement. Number one, the division was obvious to other people. And number two, when it manifested itself the most, when, it became, when the division became clearest is when they gathered together to worship Christ. Isn't that sad? Their quarreling was made clear by when the body gathered because they united behind men and issues and not the Messiah. And people could tell that while they were gathered gathered under the same banner of Christ, once they get inside, they grouped off into smaller groups. They called themselves Corinthians, but they were really Pauline Corinthians or Apollos Christians or Cephas Corinthians. They let the adjective define rather than the noun. Now, there's nothing wrong with adjectives. As I told you before, the whole issue I can remember in church history class talking about the, the, the change that, that uh, was taking place in the 1900s to, to make it more palatable. You know, people didn't like the name Baptist or Presbyterian or whatever it was, and so they began to take the name off. We don't want to call ourselves Timberlake Baptist Church because... People may have had bad experience with Baptists, and we don't want to turn them off or offend them. So it was just Timberlake Church or whatever it was. I remember my church history professor saying, you know, how would you like it? I've used it before. How would you like it if you were walking down the Campbell's soup aisle and there was no labels on the soup cans? You know it's soup, but you don't know what it is. And so it wasn't that the adjectives were unimportant, but what the main thing main thing that they gathered behind was, you know, was Christ. 
They were all Christians gathered in the Corinthian church, but when they gathered in their minds, they were more connected to something else. It was a lesser issue. They were saying, I am of this crowd, or I am of this crowd, or I'm an old member, I'm a new member, I'm following this. And you go later, you go into chapter 3 when he says, um, I planted and Apollos watered. I am, I, am of, I am of Paul. He's an evangelist. He's a soul winner. No, I'm of Apollos. He's a trainer. I mean, they're connecting these to the messages behind these, behind these men. And when they were supposed to be first and foremost brothers in Christ, Spurgeon, in his eloquent and yet blunt way, states this, To remain divided is sinful. Exclamation point. Did not our Lord pray that we may be one even as we are one? Our Lord's prayer in John 17 must be read in its full context. John 17, 7. 17, 17. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word can be one in Christ. So he's not talking about just being a 500 pound theological marshmallow and not believing anything. To teach or to do otherwise is to betray the gospel. It's to betray the gospel, not to define those doctrinal things that you stand on. It's also to betray the gospel to do what Paul is saying here in, in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 12. The gathering revealed their loyalties. It was also confirmed by, by their lives, their speech. In this case, verse 12. Now, I say this, that each of you says, and they identified. And notice the repetition. I am of Paul, or I am following Paul. I am of, or I am following Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. The men, these were men that, that led them to Christ, or they had some heart connection with. And they were saying, I'm a follower of this person because this person's connected to my heart. Now, I want you to notice two things about the list. The message they were responding to, the message that Paul preached, the message that Apollos preached, the message that Cephas preached, and clearly the message that Jesus preached, the message was not bad. It wasn't the issue. These were not like the Judaizers over in Colossae where Paul says... Get away from them. Don't listen to them. Run them out of your church. I mean, they were preaching a good message. And I also want you to notice that the leaders, these were all good guys. Apollos and Paul and Cephas and Christ. No issues with any of those guys. These weren't like the Second Peter false teachers who were just gathering folks for, for money or immorality. In the Bible, you, you can have wicked men purposely dividing the church. You can have ignorant men who are used of the devil to divide the church, and you can have good men. And the issue is not the message or the leader. But in this case, it was the people. The issue here wasn't Paul. The issue here wasn't Apollos. The issue here wasn't even their message. The issue was the people. They weren't cross-centered. They weren't unified in the message of Christ. And that led to following lesser issues. A.W. Tozer said, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos are all tuned to the same fork? All tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned. Not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. 
So 100 worshipers meeting together, each looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. It's really good. When you take your eyes off the main thing, the message of the cross, everything else gets blurry. It's blurry for believers and the cross can lose its power. Now these last two will go very quickly. The third area is the principle of oneness. Look at verse 13. I told you here's, the, here's his main issue. Principle of oneness in Christ. Is Christ divided? That's, that's, his, that's his answer. That's his question. It's a question that ends it all. It's his central argument. Believers are one in Christ. Is Christ divided? He's the head, you're the body. Nothing else that fastens us is more binding than Christ. No matter how beneficial, how important, or how helpful you think it is, nothing is more important than the bond of the cross. He goes on. I wasn't crucified for you, was I? Now, Paul's a leader that gets it. Now, he was one of the guys that people were attaching themselves to, and he's trying, and they're trying to follow Paul, and they're going, Oh, Paul, man, you really get it, buddy. I mean, we're following you. We're so thankful for your apostleship. You are, you are, you're great. And that's very tempting for somebody who's a leader. What's Paul do? I wasn't crucified for you. Look to Jesus. That's what Paul does. He says, this person didn't hang on the cross. This issue, this project didn't go to the grave. Jesus did, and we're all unified in Him. And He has sent us as servants. And this whole thing about baptism, were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's a... The idea of somebody who's baptized, it's their public profession that they have become a follower of a teacher. And he's saying, when I came and you were baptized, when somebody else baptized you, they didn't baptize you to follow that person. They baptized you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, I'm really thankful <laughs> because of the issue going on in the church that I baptized none except Crispus and Gaius. And in verse 15, he tells us why, lest anyone should say that I baptized them in my own name. Paul's saying, I know I didn't do that, but I don't want anybody to think that. And then he gets to the fourth area. Verse 17. Fourth area that relates to, to unity is the result. See, the result of gutting the gospel. Not obeying what Paul says here, the, the principle or the area that relates to unity in the church is, is what's going on in Corinth right now actually guts the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 17. Now, this is an explanation for his little excursus here his parentheses, his sidebar, when he says, I thank, I thank God in verse 14 that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone say. And then he kind of says, yeah, you know, I, I did baptize Stephanus, but I wouldn't, you know. And here's the explanation, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 
many times I've quoted that verse to people who believe baptism is part of salvation. He didn't send me to do this, but He sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Now, He introduces a sub-theme, which is about the wisdom of men versus the wisdom of God. And that's going to follow through all the way through chapter 3. But I want you to notice why Paul is so concerned about people following him or the disunity in the church or uh, secondary issues becoming the main thing. Because when that happens, the cross of Christ is emptied of its power. It's made of, of no effect. He says, not with wisdom of words lest the cross of Christ be, be made of, of, of no effect. Look at verse 18. He goes on to explain what he means by that. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. The sad reality of being divided is that it blunts the message of the gospel. It blurs things for believers inside the church, young and old, And it blunts the message externally. Strong words made of no effect. The cross is emptied of its power. The message loses its wisdom. He goes on to say the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. What do you mean by that? It means whatever the secondary issue is, whatever the means, whatever the program, whatever the project, that's not where the power is. That's a vessel to carry the true power. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, that's not where the power is. They're just a vessel to carry the real power. Timberlake Baptist Church, that's not really where the real power is. The real, they're just a vessel to carry the real power. And the real power is the gospel. And the gospel is the message of Jesus Christ. Who He is, what He accomplished, and that's what He means when He says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is, it's unwise. It sounds like a foolish message to those who are outside perishing. But to us, those who are being saved, we, it's the power of God. <laughs> I embrace that. I believe that. It saved me. That's the one that, that saved me. If the Corinthian church or our church or any church or a group becomes But anything other than Jesus Christ, it will drain the message of its power to save. Now, the message is not any less powerful. It just blunts the tool that God is using to accomplish it. During World War II, Hitler commanded all religious groups to unite so that he could control them. Among the brethren assemblies, half complied and half refused. Those who went along with the order had a much easier time, as you can imagine. Those who didn't faced harsh persecution. In almost every family of those who resisted Hitler's order, someone died in a concentration camp. When the war was over, Hitler's dead, Germany's gone... The feelings of bitterness ran deep between the groups, and there was much tension, as you can imagine. You think I'm going to gather together with those bunch of sellouts? That's what they were feeling. 
Finally, they decided the situation had to be healed. The leaders from each group met at a quiet retreat. And for several days, each person spent time in prayer, examined his own heart in light of Christ's commands, and then they came together. First time that the two groups had come together. Francis Schaeffer told of the incident, asked a friend who was there, what did you do then? Nothing. We were just one, he replied. As we confessed our hostility and bitterness to God and yielded to His control, the Holy Spirit created a spirit of unity among us and love filled our hearts and dissolved the hatred. Schaefer says, When love prevails among believers, especially in the times of strong disagreement, it prevents or presents to the world an indisputable mark of a true follower of Jesus Christ. They're not West Virginia Christians, California Christians, or whatever else. We're just all followers of Christ. Christ.